Well, a bit later on this afternoon, we are going to be hearing from the health minister as well as the Minister of Advanced Education and Skills Training for an announcement on the healthcare system and what the BC government is doing to try and fix some of the issues. There certainly are many. And my next guest has been sharing his concerns on social media. He's also been sharing his concerns on this show in the past as well. Kevin McLeod is an internal medicine specialist at Lionsgate Hospital. Hospital and joins me on the line now. Thank you so much for being here. Jill, it's, it's nice to be here. You put out a list of what you called the 10 things that could help improve access to care and to deal with the health care crisis that we have going on in this province. Can you go through a couple of things or what do you think is kind of at the top of that list? I mean, honestly, Jill, there's, there's so many more than just 10 things, but, you know, you, you lose people's interest if you, if you put too many out there. It, 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 at the root of it, we've got to recruit more people into nursing as a career, and I, I hope that's going to be part of what the government announcement is today. We need to recruit, and I use this term carefully, but we've got to recruit the right people into medical school that, you know, want to work hard, want to do um, good quality longitudinal care and and really look after patients in a a more kind of comprehensive, cohesive way. Um, You you know, those would be two of the biggest things. We we need to look at what we um, pay our long-term care workers. You know, it's it's absolute insanity, but I I can tell you this is going to be the same for most hospitals. You know, our hospitals probably 15, 20% of people in there can be waiting for a long-term care bed because that bed isn't available. Yet the funny thing is, or the ironic thing is, the physical beds are there. We just don't have staff to staff those long-term care beds. So we plug up a hospital, we plug up a medical ward with somebody who really doesn't need to be in hospital. It's not the best place for them. Um, You know, we just put them at risk by exposing them to all the, the problems in a hospital setting. And then the emergency departments are full of admitted patients. And then the waiting room's full of people waiting to get into the emergency department. Well, if we could get those patients out by instead of, you know, paying long-term care workers $21.60 or whatever it is they get per hour, it's, it's around that range, you know, maybe we would attract people to work in long-term care and we, we would, you know, just help significantly with the flow. Um, so there, there are things that we can actually do today if we had the political will to do them Um, and I I don't personally understand what the holdup is because there's so much political pressure on the government to to do some of these things but we we seem to drag our feet and study and create commissions and all this sort of stuff we we just need to get on the business of doing it (laughs) so yeah, well, and the example you give, too, of the, I mean, 15 to 20% is a huge amount for a hospital and for people that are in hospital that probably don't want to be there either. And like you say, it's not the best environment for them. Uh, but that does seem like a, a generally, or as, I mean, compared to some other uh, of the issues, that seems like one that could be dealt with. I mean, we've been dealing with that for years. Right. I mean, I, I can't get patients home who don't need to be in hospital because our community health nurses and and support workers are so busy and overwhelmed they you know they can't see that patient so i have to keep them in a hospital until they have a slot that opens up and and there's availability right you know and and it's very very hard to recruit people into those community community positions or long-term care positions because they're really difficult jobs right and 
you know, I mean, if you're a long-term care worker and you're getting at twenty-one sixty an hour, even even with benefits, let's say it's thirty dollars an hour, you know, for most of your listeners, you know, that's really tough to live on in the Lower Mainland. Yes, it's better than what a lot of people get paid, but but you know, they have a choice of lots of jobs right now, and and if it isn't competitive, then we can't fill the positions, and then, you know, instead we're paying double, triple time to try to attract people to work in a hospital, which ultimately costs us way more as taxpayers. So, you know, it's, it's, um, yeah, it's, and, and, and when you think about it too, even if you just look at it from an economic perspective, the, the, the person who's, who's making 20 ish dollars an hour, they're not taking money and sticking it in the Caymans or hiding it away. They're putting it right back into the economy because they're struggling to pay their rent. They're struggling to get, you know, food or like you've been talking about, how do they even fill their car with gas? So the money goes right back into the economy, but we, we really need to attract more people into some of these lower paying healthcare jobs that, that are so desperately needed. Uh, one of your other or number 10 on the list that you put out was something that caught my attention as well, because we haven't talked very much about this, but I am very interested in this. You wrote tax cosmetic procedures that are not medically necessary, 25% effective January 1st, raise it to 50% the following year, reduce demand for cosmetic services that are pulling away the physicians and nurses your taxes have paid to train, use the funds for the above changes, some of the things we just talked about. How much of an issue is it, do you think, that, uh, like you say, cosmetic procedures taking physicians and nurses out of the public system? Um, I think it's an issue. I, I know I, you know, I get a lot of negative feedback for that suggestion. People don't like it. Um, you know, e- economics is simple. It's supply and demand. So we need to increase the supply of people working in the system, but we also need to decrease demand for certain things that you know, we we just don't have the human resources to be able to provide right now. So I, I can give you a real world example. I talked to a lady this morning um, who's 86, who's got heart failure and some kidney disease and diabetes. And, you know, she was in tears because she's losing her family doctor because her family doctors informed her that he or she is going to purely do cosmetics going forward. So, you know, that, that there's there's a lady who really has had this family doctor for years, isn't going to have this family doctor now, and now has nobody, um, that's a big problem, right? And, and you can say, well, it's choice. Um, absolutely. I don't think we should force anybody to, to practice a kind of medicine they don't want to practice. But, you know, as a society, we can decrease demand for something. Look, it's happening with gas. We don't want people burning fossil fuels. Well, the price of gas goes up. Hey, people are not going to drive as much, right? Um, you know, no different with cosmetics. And, and, you know, you can roll that money right back into full service traditional family practice. But if you decrease the demand, and, you know, for, for your listeners, I mean, you, you can think, well, but I really want to get the Botox. It, it actually has an impact, right? Because when you go and get that done, sure, you may want to do that for cosmetic reasons, but you have pulled somebody out of the system. If we were in a system where there was unlimited human resources, no big deal, right? But we've, we have such a demand in our society for, for some of these cosmetic things now. Like, how many people that are listening, you know, see a doctor who's also now doing some cosmetic stuff? Now, I can understand it because the traditional family medicine is not covering the overhead and paying the bills. So people are trying to look for other ways to, 
to be able to cover some of those things. But it, so it's not as simple as just saying, hey, just tax this and decrease demand. I mean, there has to be other support that goes in place as well to, to really help support our family docs, right? right. I mean, I, I could say, I'm just going to do private stuff, Jill. I, you know, I would work way less hours. Mm-hmm. Um, I would earn way more money. I mean, I would probably triple my take-home pay um, for half to a third of the work. Well, why Why wouldn't I do that? I mean, I'm not going to do that because it's not the right thing to do. But more and more people are moving into into private things. And, you know, if that family doctor can work their butt off and, you know, take home maybe $100 um, an hour, which I know sounds like a huge amount, but for all of the responsibilities that they're doing, it's, it's not. Or they can say, you know what, I'm going to do cosmetics and make $750 an hour. Why? You can see the appeal why people are getting pulled into that. And, and the public system can never pay the same rate as cosmetics. Taxpayers just can't afford that. But we can decrease demand for some of those procedures by taxing them. Right. And I, I can see how the, the, some, the, some of the response to that uh, and people, uh, like you said, saying, but well, hold on a second. It's a choice, not only for people that are choosing to have cosmetic procedures, but also for the doctors and nurses and people who are choosing to work uh, in those areas. But do you think, though, if, if the demand was, was taken down, uh, would we actually see, say, clinics that are dedicated to cosmetic surgeries? Wh- where would the guarantee be or would we even know if the people People working in those clinics would come back to the public system? Well, you're right. It's a good question. I mean, they may not, um, you know, but, but then it sort of goes back to this bigger question, which I think we have to address as a society is, you know, who, like what, what kid makes the best physician? Like what does society need? Because, you know, as society, we're investing a ton of money into training people. I mean, you, you probably, these are older estimates, I don't know what it is now, but I mean, you, you're, you're probably putting four to 500,000 tax dollars into training a physician, if not more. Um, you know, now if that person comes out and, and doesn't sort of choose a route that the community needs, I mean, it's not that we're going to jump and scream and tie them to a tree and force them to do family medicine, but then we need to look at, well, maybe we're not remunerating family medicine well enough, maybe... You know, people are more attracted to specialties. Maybe the job is just not supported well enough. Um, but part of it, too, is are we are we letting the right people in? I mean, there's so many kids that want to do medicine that don't get in. And it's such a challenging, hard thing to get into now that you, you typically, and this is controversial, people will disagree with me on this, but you have to have a, I've been doing this 17 years, you have to have a, a you got to come from a fairly wealthy family to be able to do medical school. Um, now, that's not to be for everybody. It's not universal. But, you know, you got to be able to volunteer a ton, not take your summers off to work. You, you know, it, it's kids who've had a lot of opportunities because they have reasonably high wealth in their families. Um, even the tuition's really high, right? Like mm-hmm. student loans don't even come close to covering the tuition. So, you know, is that, and I'm not, I don't have the answer to this, but is that the right kid who's going to come out and, you know, provide the service that the community needs? Or maybe the kid who got 85% whose parents work at the mill in Prince George, maybe that kid's going to do better. Like, I think it's worth us really looking at that as a society um, and deciding, right? Right. And you you touched on this as well, saying that physicians' education is already massively subsidized. So is it maybe looking at a different formula of how it's subsidized? 
potentially, right? Potentially looking at how it's subsidized or, you know, like, are, are you getting, like the government's been looking at, like, are you getting some loan forgiveness or some of that um, subsidized if you choose the, the roots of sort of care that the community needs, right? I mean, what? why as a taxpayer are you subsidizing somebody to do cosmetic procedures? I mean, is is that good? Is that bad? I mean, maybe you want to subsidize somebody who's choosing traditional family medicine or who's working in the middle of the night on a Sunday. Um, you know, so we, we have choices as citizens and we choose all the time what we tax, what we subsidize. And, and maybe that needs to be looked at because money doesn't grow on trees and the government can't just suddenly come up with a whole bunch of money for health care. You know, you need you need other ways to raise some of that revenue. And, and um, everybody knows we can't raise gas taxes. <laughs> <laughs> very, very true. Uh, well, Dr. McLeod, as always, thank you so much for joining us and for talking about this. Some very interesting ideas that I'm sure will continue to get a lot of reaction. But thank you so much for your time today. Jill, anytime. Forward the hate mail to me. <laughs> Well, it is an ambitious housing plan talking about the plan released by NDP leadership hopeful David Eby. And one part of that plan is getting a lot of attention. So the uh, restriction on uh, rentals in strata buildings is preventing a couple of things. One is we know there are a large number of people that own condos that are vacant and they uh, have the speculation and vacancy tax apply to them because it's vacant, they're not renting it out. And we exempted them as government from paying that tax because there was a strata rule that said you're not allowed to rent out the unit. And the reason for that is they say they want to rent out the unit, but the strata rule prevents them from doing that. And uh, we are desperate for rental housing. We can't have a situation where a unit is sitting vacant uh, and there are families that are desperate for housing that can't find a place to rent. That was David Eby speaking about this yesterday. So joining us now to talk more about this particular part of the housing plan is Tony Giaventu, Executive Director of the Condo Homeowners Association of BC. Tony, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, thanks for having me, Jill. What is your response to hearing that and to, to that part of David Eby's housing plan? Well, the there are two different kinds of stratas when it comes to rentals, there are those that were built and constructed from January 1st, 2010 onwards. And virtually all of those, about 300,000 units, were exempt from rental bylaws because developers um, filed a rental disclosure that under the legislation permitted an exemption from rental bylaws. And then we have stratas that are pre-2010 that all had the entitlement or ability to have rental bylaws that limited or restricted the number of rentals. Um, The number of people that are um, filing a claim that that their strata can't rent um, and that they are not um, um, that they are not available to to rent their units is about 2,600. Um, which may or not have been verified out of almost a million units across the province. So it's a, it's actually a really small number. Um, one of the challenges is who this is really going to affect most. We have 34,000 strata corporations in the province. About 75% of those are 50 units or less. 
and they're almost all self-managed. That's where you're going to find most of the rental bylaws. But that's where you also find the very the highest vacancy rates. It's not like there's a bunch of vacancies in those buildings just waiting to be rented. Almost all of them have occupancy rates of 99% or greater. Uh, so it, they're not buildings or properties that are open to speculators or investors. The real vacancies exist in the buildings that were constructed after 2010 with no rental bylaws because it opened the door on all kinds of speculation um, and investment. Right. And so with those buildings, then they don't have any of the the bylaws, so they wouldn't even really be part of this equation, would they? No, it doesn't really affect them. But that's where all the vacancies are. Um, You know, if we look at studies of buildings in um, the metro areas, um, buildings that were built and constructed from 2010 onwards, um, average vacancy rates around 15 to 22 percent. The issue is not availability of rentals. The, the issue is affordability. Um, and trying to, you know, impose this on rentals, um, on strata corporations and say, look, you're, you're part of the rental problem. It doesn't really make any sense because by the time you add strata fees, taxes and insurance, um, without trying to maintain a mortgage, an investor is going to be into it for about $1,000 a month minimum, whether it's an older strata or a new strata. It's still an affordability issue because if you look at the rental rates for strata condos, um, they are still $2,500 plus for um, you know single-bedroom units within our metro areas. And in our, our um, suburban areas, they're going to be about $2,000 plus. So it's a real affordability issue, not availability. Right. But listening to David Eby when he announced this yesterday, and even in that clip that I just played, he makes it sound as if there are all of these empty condos sitting out there. And the only reason they're empty is because stratas aren't letting people rent them out. Yeah, well, most strata corporations who actually have rental bylaws, they permit a specific number of rentals. Um, but, you know, ask yourself the question, if you live in a 15-unit strata complex, uh, whether it's a small apartment or a townhouse complex or a bare land strata, you're the volunteer strata council who does not have management support. You have to take care of everything. Um, you end up with a landlord um, who is absentee that doesn't deal with their tenants, you're the volunteers who now become rental landlords and managing tenants, as well as having to manage the routine business of the Strata Corporation. It's not as easy to just say, look, we have all these vacancies. We don't. In buildings constructed prior to 2010, the vacancy rate is very, very low, like 1% or 2%. Um, in buildings that were constructed after 2010, where there's a lot of investors or speculators, the vacancy rate is closer to 15 to 22%. Hmm. And and why is there, I mean, what would be the, the reason or why would it even be financially uh, attractive to leave so many of those condos empty? It's just speculators and investors, really. Hmm. Um, the other side of that is there, there, in the newer buildings, there are far fewer bylaws that prohibit short-term rentals like Airbnb. So people hold them, use them as rentals for Airbnb through the summer, don't use them as Airbnb rentals through the winter, and they're just basically vacant units. You know, we still have the the ongoing phenomena of driving around the downtown areas of Victoria, Vancouver, and Kelowna, and still seeing 35 or 40% of all the units dark because no one's living in them.
Right. No, and that's very true. You can you can see that really on any uh, evening or any uh, if you t- do take that drive. Um, I yeah. wanted to ask you as well, something else uh, David Eby said yesterday as part of this plan was getting rid as well of the age requirements or, or say if a building was 19 plus saying that if somebody had a baby, their family expanded, then they wouldn't be forced to leave. Uh, is that a thing? I mean, that came up in a, a strata that I lived in uh, years and years ago. But uh, at the time, we thought it was resolved in that you can't be told you have to leave even if if you do have a child. But is that a thing? Yeah, it it is. It's a complicated problem. You know, the 55 and over bylaw um, defines retirement communities, right? And communities where, you know, they're not um, going to have children. But um, you're you're looking at a retirement community. When you have 19 and over, you know, your first, most people between 20 and 35 probably purchased their first condo, but that's probably when they're going to have their first child as well. And so, it, you know, they've mustered up the money to save for this. They've got um, their first unit and now um, they're expecting and they have a child and all of a sudden they're faced with a bylaw that under the Strata Property Act has enforceability to it. They're faced with a bylaw that says you're going to have to sell your unit and move because you don't comply with the bylaw anymore. It's a it's a huge problem because the moment the the definition of your family status changes, this bylaw kicks in and it create it and it really creates problematic issues. And and this also contributes to a housing affordability problem. Right. So do you think that's a good plan then to get rid of that rule? I think it's probably ideal to make a very clean decision on what is permitted and what not what is not permitted because there's a bit of ambiguity around the other age restrictions other than 55 and over. Right. Okay. And uh, Tony, just uh, one more point on the rental and kind of stripping those powers uh, from strata councils when it comes to rental uh, caps or or banning rentals altogether. Uh, Do you think that's going to, it's going to be difficult then, and you touched on this, but if strata councils aren't able to do that, and if you're you're saying too, that it's not going to lead to the desired effect, which is suddenly a bunch of condos come up for rent and we we don't have empty condos sitting out there. Is this going to create a lot of headaches, do you think, for stratas? Well, we already have a hard problem in smaller stratas getting enough people to sit on the strata council to do the volunteer work of managing their property. This is not going to make it any easier. The other, one of the other issues that comes up um, is that insurance providers, as you're aware, a few years ago, we had a huge insurance crisis. Insurance providers evaluate risk on buildings based upon the number of rentals that are within buildings. And buildings with low numbers of rentals or no rentals um, are considered to be a lower risk. So, you know, like it's, it's going to eventually impact cost of insurance and availability insurance at some point as well. Why is that? Why are they deemed lower risk? It's the transiency rate with tenants. Um, you know, that's one of the challenges that um, you have. And, and, and you know, I, I, compare, I compare pets um, and tenants in the same way. There are really no bad pets or bad tenants. There's just always bad owners, bad landlords. Um, if you have a landlord who really isn't scrutinizing um, and doing security checks on their tenants, it can really wreak havoc for a strata corporation. Um, so it's, you know, it doesn't take many of these to create a real problem within the industry or for a strata corporation. 
one of the one of the deficiencies we have is that there is a disconnect between the Residential Tenancy Act and the Strata Property Act because the Strata Corporation has no legal interest in the tenancy agreement between the landlord and the tenant. And even though the Act says that a Strata Corporation may evict a tenant if the tenant, you know, and you're dealing with chronic violations of bylaws or damages or security issues, um, the Residential Tenancy Act um, can't address that because the Strata Corporation has no legal standing in that tenancy arrangement. Mm -hmm. So we need some wholesale changes to the Residential Tenancy Act and the Strata Property Act to give Strata Corporations some more power over this issue. All right, Tony, thank you so much for joining us and uh, giving us your response to this. Uh, I really appreciate it today. That's super. Thanks so much, Jill. Bye for now. Well, time to talk a little bit about transit funding. And at the final meeting before the civic elections, which, as we know, are taking place next month, the Mayor's Council has approved its submission. And this is to the Infrastructure Canada's public consultation on that, on what the future of transit might look like and what a permanent transit fund could do for the region. And joining us on the line to talk more about this is Jonathan Cote, Mayor of New Westminster, also the current chair of the Mayor's Council. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, well, thanks for having me on the show. What specifically is this asking for then as far as accelerating uh, this idea or this new permanent transit fund? Yeah, well, uh, you know, the uh, Mayor's Council, uh, you know, really was one of the leading uh, advocates for the federal government to implement uh, a permanent uh, transit fund. And we'd advocated for a number of years and, uh, and we're very happy uh, that uh, that the federal government did uh, did uh, did support that and has embedded that um, into into their long range budgeting, but uh, right now they're actually working on how do they develop and, and actually implement uh, implement the plan. And today is what we were doing is we're providing our, our feedback on that. And the first and foremost is uh, the plan is is scheduled to start in in, in 2026. But uh, you know we want to make the case that. Uh, uh, you know, we have plans uh, and ambitions to to improve transit in Metro Vancouver right away. We would love to see uh, see the, that that funding start uh, a couple of years uh, a couple of years earlier to to allow basically cities across Canada to really start uh, uh, start to make investments in, in their public transit system. And then also, uh, you know, also some some further details about how do we get the federal government to not just support individual projects, but actually support entire transit plans uh and and because that's something we've worked uh worked really hard off in metro vancouver is not just to develop individual projects but try and put together uh a, a cohesive set of uh transit priorities for the region all right so i was going to ask so how is this and i think you've kind of answered this but but the difference then between getting funding when we have those funding formulas when it's the three levels of government to whatever the the formula is as far as who's paying for what so this is different than 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 that going forward and saying oh, we need a SkyTrain to ubc or we need SkyTrain here yeah well you know i think the the, the best advantage of of this type of system is you know we've had lots of support in the past from uh, you know federal and provincial government but they've you know it's it's kind of come in, in fits and starts and what this is going to provide is actually more predictable funding support from uh, you know from from the federal government and, and obviously we're hoping uh, the provincial government is is also able to, uh, to to match and they've been very supportive so far uh, to, to be able to to do that and i think that allows Oh, Mayor Cote, can you hear me? Oh, 
we will try and reconnect with uh, Jonathan Cote. We'll try. Can you hear us? All right, we're going to try and reconnect with Jonathan Cote. I was waiting. That allows what? What was he going to say? We will try and get that phone line hooked up once again. Uh, we are talking to Jonathan Cote, who, as you know, is the mayor of New Westminster. He's also the chair of the Mayor's Council. And we're talking about the mayor's call to accelerate that permanent transit fund. We have reconnected with Mayor Cote. Uh, can you hear us Okay. I can, and my apologies. I, I might have a bad cell connection. So. <laughs> this one, this sounds okay. You were right mid-sentence saying that allows us to, and then it was very, uh, very suspenseful because the phone line cut out. So, so that allows you to what? You know, do proper planning for the region, um, and uh, and and kind of have that long-term stability that we know we're going to have that partnership both provincially and, and federally moving forward. So how does this work then with the transport, the 2050, this is the 10-year priorities when it comes to uh, the Mayor's Council, the TransLink plan as well for the expansion plan. If we went to a permanent transit fund rather than bit by bit or or project by project, how would that change anything or how would that affect the 10-year plan? Yeah, well, you know, I think the fact that we have a a 10-year plan that, that outlines the priorities um, you know, for this region over over the next 10 years, it allows us to actually hit the ground running when this comes comes in place, because when the funding is available, we know the priorities that have been identified in the first five years of the plan. We know priorities that are identified in years five to five to 10. And given that transportation projects, you know, often take many, many years, uh, you know, from planning to, to construction to, to finally opening, uh, you know, it just gives us that, uh, you know, that important advantage that we need. But I, I think the fact that we do have that plan, uh, you know, I think that's actually going to serve Metro Vancouver very well. Are you concerned, though, that the response to this could be, well, it's working the way it's been working all along in that you put forward a project and based on its merits or the need for it, that's what kind of leads to the decision on whether or not there'll be funding? Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I think we can make a pretty compelling case that, yeah, individual projects are important. And, and we know the provincial and federal government want to uh, certainly align themselves with really good good investments uh, there. But, you know, I think all levels of government need to look at, you know, transportation systems holistically and recognizing, you know, any one project isn't going to necessarily achieve all of our objectives uh, uh, for, for our transportation system. It's going to be a collection and, uh, and, and a plan of projects that, that can really help move our region forward. So, you know, I think so far Metro Vancouver has had a pretty long history of, of, of identifying, identifying these long-term plans. And to me, I actually think it makes it easier for the provincial and federal governments to, to, to kind of support and understand the work we're trying to achieve here. And you mentioned, too, that it would be across Canada or, or as far as funding projects for major cities or places that need transit improvements. Would there be a model in there or a formula in there as far as based on population or would it be what would that be based on as far as getting the, the percentage of funding? Yeah, so you know, it definitely is based on 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 percentage uh, percent uh, population percentages, um, but it is also based on on transit ridership. And uh, the general formula has been kind of done on a bit of a per capita basis, but also recognizing you know on on the uh, transit ridership that uh, the region region demands there. Um, but the reality is, all of the major cities in, in Canada, you know, have have a strong interest to to improve their transportation systems and make investments. So you know, this isn't something that isn't just, just going to benefit the Metro Vancouver, but 
but it's, it's something that's going to help transit all across the country. Does it does it change though, or does it make it more difficult? Say you were to get the permanent transit fund, and that's the, the for projects that again are in the we'll use the ten year plan. If priorities change, we're going to see councils change in in the election, which is happening next month. But if things change or, or the priorities shift, are they tie, is the funding tied to what was already in the plan and what it was for, or or is there leeway there? Yeah, you know, and and I, I think the plan, the structure has to be designed to have some flexibility to uh, to know that there'll be, uh, uh, you know, things will evolve in, in time. And, you know, no doubt the provincial and federal government, uh, before they put funding towards any project, you know, they need solid business cases to uh, to really help support and know it's, uh, you know, a good good investment there. Um, but, you know, I think we've seen in the past this, this region has has had to make some some changes and we've we've kind of found ways to to still make it make it work and i think the most latest example is you know the shift from light rail in surrey to uh, to, to the sky train along fraser fraser highway um, both really good transit projects but obviously a change in priorities in the city of surrey but we were able to bring all of the different parties together to to recognize that and uh, and be able to move forward still with uh, an important transit project south of the fraser river and with the civic elections coming up and you being uh, somebody that has clearly obviously gone through that in the past, we're already hearing promises uh, in Vancouver, <clears throat> excuse me, the current mayor saying uh, if, if re-elected, he would work at doing a transit loop, a big expansion. We know Doug McCallum campaigned on that SkyTrain in Surrey and, and was elected to build SkyTrain in Surrey. How much does it play into it, do you think, the promises that are made during civic elections? Yeah, well, you know, I, I am encouraged to, to kind of see, uh, you know, campaigns across the region, uh, you know, excited about improving our, our public transit system in Metro Vancouver. And I, I think that's, that's a positive uh, you know, moving forward, though, I, I, you know, I think we don't want to start from scratch in, in, in the plans. We have uh, this past year adopted Transport 2050, which is our long range uh, transportation plan and our 10 year priorities. And, you know, I think that has to be the, the roadmap for, for moving forward, because if you're constantly changing plans or starting plans, you're never able to actually you get moving forward. So, you know, I think with with every uh, campaign uh campaign promise and, and platform, I think the important is how does how is that consistent? And, you know, I think a number of the, the platforms I've heard is, you know, these are ideas that, you know, came out of Transport 2050 or in, and, and are in, in, uh, in, in the 10-year priorities. And to me, I, you know, I never like to uh, dampen any of the enthusiasm for, uh, for people putting, you know, going forward and wanting to advocate for better transit in our region. Right. I, I'm just curious if, there, if there's a level of that that's a bit disingenuous to be promising these things as part of an election campaign, when, like you said, there are some of these ideas that are already in the transport plan, and it's not as if one council can decide, just sign off and decide that they're going to go ahead with a, a huge transit plan. Yeah, well, you know, our, our system of governance in, in Metro Vancouver really relies on, on the collaboration of all the, all the municipalities uh, in, in, in the region there. So, yeah, no, no one local government is, is going to be able to implement any specific transit plan. It's, it's really about all of the local governments working together, sticking to the plan and, and really finding some regional, regional goals there. So, you know, I, I, I love to uh, he, hear the enthusiasm on the campaign trail for improving our transit system. But, but it, you know, in my opinion, it, it does need to be grounded in our, in our long range plans uh, uh, that uh, the TransLink has put out. Uh, I mentioned as well, so this was the final meeting of uh, the, the mayors uh, the calling on the federal government to do this. What will happen to this, do you think, then? I, I wouldn't imagine there's going to be uh, any major updates before October 15th. What happens to this to this call, do you think? Yeah, well, you know, it's, 
it's uh, it's actually the federal government that was looking for feedback on the development of, of this this plan. So, uh, you know, I'm anticipating they're actually going to be hearing feedback from all of the you know major uh, urban centers across the country in in developing that plan. Um, you know, I, I do think one job number one of, of the next mayor's council is going to uh, to. To, to begin their advocacy work both provincially and federally to make sure we have strong uh, strong partners there uh, to not only allow TransLink be able to kind of continue to kind of recover and and uh, and find stability out of the pandemic, but also get us back on track for for expanding our system. All right, Jonathan Cote, thank you so much for joining us and for talking more about this today. No, well, thanks very much for having me on the show.